I've just come back from a David Lloyd's tour of the East Midlands where I've done no work, no PTing, coaching, social media, anything to do with the podcast for a couple of days and it feels great and I am ready to really, really crack on with a busy 10 days before the next break. Um, this was a real pleasure to speak to Michael Calvin, a football journalist, sports journalist and has been that for 40 years. Um, and over the course of the podcast, you'll hear some of the stories he has to tell. A lot of them, you know, to do with the book, Whose Game Is It Anyway, that's out now. Um, but just an unbelievable career and some amazing stories and a great storyteller. Mike, a real pleasure to chat to you. And I wish you all the best with the book. Can you pinpoint when you became a Watford fan? Uh, I suppose it was a form of emotional osmosis through you know, my early school years, really, you know, five, six years old, you're playing football in, in the playground. You become aware that there's this thing called a football club with floodlights and noise every second Saturday. I suppose I, I started going there when I was about seven or eight, I suppose. My dad was a, was a big uh, rugby league man and he, he, you know, he didn't take me. I, I basically took myself for a while and it was in those sort of, Enid Blyton days where, um, you know, boys were able to go, you know, from their houses and um, go to a local football club when they were about seven or eight. So it was pretty established as a childhood ritual from about sort of eight, nine years old. We used to go to uh, Saturday morning cinema, um, the, the pictures as we used to call it. And yeah, that was like sort of westerns and uh, cartoons. And um, if we were really daring, there was the old carry on film. Um, so that was Saturday mornings. Then we'd go to, uh, just down the road, really, there was a, a fish and chip shop called Fridays where we just had a bag of chips and we tried to bunk in uh, at the back of Watford's ground, which was which was until very, very recently, just a, um, allotments. You know, there was a bit of a, a conspiracy factor with a couple of our, our older mates from the estate who actually were operating on the turnstile, so they let you under and all that so <clears throat> I suppose that gave me an idea of of scale and theatre but it wasn't until probably I got into the inner sanctum in as much as that you know being a ball boy there was an absolutely pivotal experience for me I was 11 you know I'd been a you know supporter and you know um, you know amazingly Watford had actually won promotion um, that previous season up into the old second division and it was yeah it, it just introduced me to football and it's in the round if you like because when we went in there was this sense of intimacy about it all that as ball boys we uh, changed in an old laundry room under the auspices of a lady called Molly Rush who used to bring a, an Alsatian called Sheba to the games and that room was next to the home dressing room. So you could hear the murmurs of the players getting ready. You could smell the liniment. And that room, that old laundry room where we picked up our tracksuits, which were about probably 50 years old, it smelled of football. That liniment and stale sweat, bit of soap, bit of mud. And we could hear the, both the players and these, you know, these players were were like gods to us, really. 
as little boys, you know, I've subsequently learned they, their, their win bonus is four quid uh, in the football league, which is not really Super League standards, I suppose, is it? But we could hear the crowd as we were getting ready to, to go out um, when the players were warming up. There was like a frosted fan light on one side and the, and the noise used to seep through that. So it was a really, you know, the sense of expectation, the sense of privilege, the sense of being on the inside. And I suppose that's what I've, I've tried to sustain throughout my life, you know, because it's it, football has been you know, very good for me and it's sustained me both professionally and personally for, well, for quite a few years, you know, nearly 50 years, blimey. And going out there, it was a, it was a bit of an instant insight into one, the profession, you know, and you don't think about it in those terms at the time, but now looking back, you know, as a ball boy, you're really close to the touchline and you hear the tackles, you hear people exclaim, you, know, you see the pain, you see the fear. And certainly you know, in my professional life, what I've always tried to do in, in, in my books is to humanize um, the game and the issues around the game. And it was that sense of almost insecurity, which really came across to me very, very strongly. When, you, when you're looking at players, you know when they've had a bad game, you become very used to it. There's almost like a thousand yard stare that when they're, they, they, you know, they've maybe got um, beaten quite badly and they, they're going into the dressing room knowing they're gonna be, be told their fortunes. And um, yeah, there's that, there's that sense of, oh, here we go. And so you, you get a sense of that, you get a sense of what they mean to the crowd and what, what the game means to the, to the town and the community. It's a communal experience. And I suppose the, the key moment of that year as a ball boy was um, 1970 when Watford, it was the FA Cup quarterfinal. Uh, so, you know, I'm this 11 year old kid. The place was packed and Shankly and his first great Liverpool team turned up. Um, you know, some of the players, I remember seeing Ronnie Yates, the, 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 the sort of story he'd sent the half that they had. He looked like something out of a Marvel comic. He was massive. And, and ironically enough, Shankly looked quite diminutive by, by comparison. So Watford win this game one nil, get to the FA Cup semi-final, which was which was a nonsense because it was a you know pretty much a, a rust bucket football club. That's why in the book I I included a photograph of the goal scorer, a guy called Barry Endine, who was basically bought for fifty quid from a pub team, and it's a wonderful photograph. Not just for him, he scored this. There was a the Watford won one nil, and he's just turned behind the goal. There's straw behind there because it was a you know pretty bad weather. That's the one. Yep, that's the one. And um, so he's waiting to to be engulfed by his teammates. But I'm drawn to the people behind him. And you look at their faces. You know, they're all in Excelsis. You know, it's just a, and, and it's th that whole ground at the time I was on the other touchline. And I turned around and uh, there was a stand behind me, an old wooden stand called the Schrodinger stand, which is named after that, the hospital that, that adjoins the ground. And I saw these guys, they were actually, it was sort of a classic football pose 
small town pose where you know you always get the kids who scale the floodlights well these kids had got on the outside of the stand and they were hanging on to the stand with one hand because otherwise they'd fall about 20 feet and on the other hand there was this ridiculous semaphore of joy you know giving all this and i looked at that and i looked at i looked around people going nuts and i thought wow you know this this is something this is something special and to me you know, well, one that that image has never really left me, and it's you know I've been you know massively, massively I've been blessed basically. I've been massively for you know massively good fortune that you know here's me as a kid from a council estate in Watford, having gone around the world, worked in about eighty odd countries, seen the great occasions, met the icons of the game, but at that moment, that was the one moment where I thought, yeah, I've got to be involved in this. I suppose I was really lucky because, you know, having had kids myself, you know, the, the great blessing that you can have as a kid growing up is an idea of exactly what you want to do. A really, you know, an ambition, be it, you know, to be a footballer, which is obviously a massively popular one, astronaut, whatever it is. That moment, I wanted football to be my workplace and I was absolutely useless at football. And I was beginning to know my way around the alphabet. So I thought, well, okay, I'll be a writer. So that was it, really. I've got three very, very distinctive memories about Watford. Uh, mm. One is going to Vicarage Road for Nigeria against Venezuela, International Sunday. <laughs> right. Nothing to do with, with, with English clubs. Uh, JJ Okocha was like in his pomp. And it was just so much fun. I remember very, very distinctly, like the red and yellow seats and like the, the pit just... Very, very, very clear memory of that. The second one is the second ever game I went to at White Hart Lane was Spurs against Watford, 2nd of January, 1999, FA Cup, Spurs won 5-2. And we talked about Ronnie Rosenthal, Ronnie Rosenthal, and he came on yeah. at half time, And that was like, so, so exciting. Um, and then the third is I managed to get a ticket to sit with the Watford fans at Wembley when City beat them in the FA Cup recently. Oh, wow. Um, so, so those that, are my three, three memorial Watford. service. That one. <laughs> those are my three Watford memories. Yeah, that, the the first one intrigues me because you know, presumably that was at a time when Watford was skint and they probably needed to stage these sort of matches. Um, how how many people were there? Because that that, that I'd intrigued. Have to, I'd have to look it up, but it felt like it was full. And I remember the that the buzz around the game was massive. Like those international friendlies, I've been to. Um, I went to Brazil against you. They, they play at Fulham quite a bit. They play at Fulham, don't they? I think so. This one was at the Emirates. Um, I, I guess, you know, Brazil is an enormous amount of Brazilians in London. Um, and so I'm guessing it was fairly full, but I'd have to check the attendance. I don't know. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. It just intrigues me that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those are my, those are my Watford memories. Um, I, uh, I really like what you said just then about uh, Ronnie Yates feeling big and Shankly feeling small because I that's one of the reasons I love going to live games so much and the, one of the things I've missed so much is that the things that you just don't see on telly or you don't hear on the radio and the, the two that stand out for me uh, the first time I saw Olivier Giroud play I just thought mm. he's in he's enormous like he was towering over everyone um, and the same for Harry Maguire <laughs> just mm. like, this guy's just massive um, and uh, yeah, that's one of the things I've I've really missed about going to live games. Yeah, because well, it's three dimensional, isn't it? You know, it, it's it's there in front of you, and and also 
I don't know what you feel, Josh, but and when you look back as you know, and, you know, from the perspective of childhood, everything was big. You know, I, you know, I can remember going into Watford's ground for the first time, and it was an it's an old gravel pit. It was an old gravel pit where Vicarage Road until 1922. So you had this huge bowl, and uh, when I was growing up, it's like oh, no, I was probably about 20. Someone gave me uh, a sequence, a, a sort of sepia sequence of photographs from uh, shot at Watford. There were four separate photograph of of Watford football ground in 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 the close season so in other words you had the final game in the first um montage the second one was you know they'd obviously you know scarify the pitch and everything else third one you've got the the grass growing and a new season just about to begin and the fourth one was the new season and you know that that struck me the timelessness of that struck me but uh, it's also one of the great privileges of, of my life has been my life cycle has almost been matched by that of the, the heroes that I had. And I've almost been able to live not vicariously through them, but I've been able to sort of almost gauge um, my life through their lives. And, it, you know, and that's really bittersweet. I interviewed Shankly just before he died back about three weeks before he died in 1981 and I was mortified for one he was he was there promoting a uh, double album vinyl album of him talking about football I've still got it it's like a bit of a family heirloom and I was mesmerized I won't do the accent you know that everyone comes out with after about 10 points but he was fantastic because he reminded me of my granddad because my granddad was a really powerful man who you know informed my political beliefs in terms of being a benevolent socialist if you like so the, and I was aware of his legend that game against Liverpool was obviously a fundamental thing in my upbringing that was the the day I the first saw a grown man cry um, there was a Liverpool fan who was bereft sagged into a wire fence next to an old wooden supporters club and I can still picture him now. He had a like a donkey jacket on that my dad used to get when my dad um, was a cable uh, jointer for the electricity board. And <clears throat> when he had to dig up a road, he had this very thick coat on. It was very, very similar to that. And he had one of these very long scarves, which each section on the scarf was a name of a player, a Liverpool player. And he had all these badges and he was weeping. So that struck me, you know, again, wow, this little ball game really does get to people, doesn't it? But I, when I saw Shankly just before his death, he was really, really, he was diminished because he was divorced from his legend. And again, it was a bit of a, a bit of a wake up call in terms of, look, if I'm going to work in professional sport, you've got to understand it. And it's a brutal business. And Shankly, for all that he'd given Liverpool, the city and the club, especially the club, he was almost persona non grata. You know, he was, re he was rejected by the football club towards the end. And seeing him there signing this all, I've only, I've only had, and I'm, 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 I'm sorry, this is going to appeal a really bad, humble brag, but I've only had three autographs. I've only asked for three autographs in my life, in my professional life. Uh, one was Shankly. And I was mortified because, uh, 
I gave him a pen and it was a blue pen. And he went, you know, best wishes, or it's actually best were. And the blue ink ran out. And I'm thinking, oh, blimey, what do I do now? So I gave him another pen. So basically I've, I've got, that was a black one. So it's it's uh, best were in blue and sh Bill Shankly in blue, uh, in uh, in black. Um, but he, 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 he seemed slight there. You know, he's still physically fit. Um, although, you know, he passed away about three weeks later, I think it was. But I loved it. I just love listening to that that album now. I, I listened to it as an entirety when I was when I was writing the book again, because I just wanted to remind myself of him and the simple logic and insight and most of all passion and joy that, that, that he radiated. But yeah, so that was that was one where I almost saw the human aspects of being a hero. Um, Muhammad Ali was another around about the same time. Um, he was in London and um, he was doing a press conference at the uh, Hilton at Park Lane, bottom of Park Lane. And this is where he was agitating to get back into the heavyweight division. He was just awesome because he left that press conference and walked straight out into the road. And this is four lanes of traffic, remember? And he stopped the traffic and um, held court. And as a young journo, you know, I used my elbows and got to the front and started chatting to him. Uh, and as I'm here, I'm in my study now at home and I, there's a photograph of it that I, I, again, is in the book uh, up on the wall. You know, I was, I was a young kid then. And again, I believed that heroes were invulnerable, that they couldn't be hurt. Yet they are, and they, you know, because they're flesh and blood. And to prove that, 20 years later, I was in a place called um, Auburn Hills in Michigan, covering a Mike Tyson fight against a, a Polish guy, a pacifist called Andrew Galotta, who surrendered after two rounds. And Ali turned up and you know as i describe in the book i describe it as a human earthquake whenever he was anywhere you know people falling over shouting screaming falling all over and he sat opposite us uh, on the uh, on opposite side of the ring to the press benches and i couldn't take my eyes off him because the fight at the top of the undercard featured his daughter layla and when the first bell sounded he just put his he put his hands over his his face he couldn't bear to look and it was only when the bell rang at the end of the round that he lowered his hands wiped his brow with a white handkerchief and then repeated it through the six rounds it, it went the full distance and i couldn't take my eyes off him because you know that made me realize that okay he's he, he at that time he was he was the most famous man on the planet yet he was a man and he couldn't he was also a father and he couldn't bear to see his daughter in pain or be punched and the irony of that because you know boxing was the sport that created the legend or helped to create the legend and also ultimately killed the legend um I'm just watching him and, you know, identify with him as a father myself. 
I don't, you know, I wouldn't want my daughter. I wouldn't want her to go into a boxing ring. So, so again, there was that. I suppose the great thing about sport, people say, why write sport as opposed to I don't know politics or you know arts or whatever. In essence, I got involved in sport because, well, one, it was the next best thing for playing it, but secondly, you see the best in human nature, but also you see the worst. And actually that's quite, I think that's quite a healthy balance. You know, it makes you understand what, what, the, what makes the world go around, I suppose. The only thing I can think of that I've experienced in terms of being somewhere and everyone very clearly like not looking anywhere else other than that, that person uh, was, I've seen Messi play three times. The most yeah. recent time it was Spurs Barcelona in the Champions League at Wembley. And I, I mean, as soon as he comes out the tunnel, that's all everyone's looking at. And he does his warm up. I think him, him and Suarez warmed up separately. The whole team did their drills and everything. They just knocked one twos to each other for half an hour and walked back. Yeah, they're, they're very, they're very close. Those two, yeah, very close. Yeah. And you know, that's that Suarez, the politician in Suarez. You know, the first thing he did when he went to Barcelona was made sure he was Messi's mate. Yeah, it does yeah. help. They, they could have done with him this year, actually. We'll see what yeah. happens with La Liga, but it's going to be very, very tight there. Um, yeah, because it, it, it's interesting you, you say that, Josh, about not taking your eyes off a player. I did a book called The Nowhere Men about scouts. And one of the, the key things that one of the guys talked to me about is that, you know, when you go to a game, you don't watch the game. In fact, it was a guy called uh, Mel Johnson, who's now is still chief scout at QPR. And I went to a game with him and it was an England under 19 game. And we were, we were looking at, actually, he was looking at, they were playing Serbia by memory. And he, he was looking at their goalkeeper. And I was following the ball like you do. And he said, no, you're doing this wrong. You, you've got to concentrate on your man. And it's remarkable when you just concentrate on watching one player, what you see. Like if you'd have watched Messi for 90 minutes, 60 minutes of that he's walking about and you get that split second where he switches in and he goes so you learn so much I, I did that I did that as an exercise I watched Wayne Rooney play for England at Wembley and I didn't watch anything apart from Wayne Rooney and this is towards the end of his career and I was it, it blew my head off because I actually realized why he was in the team at that stage he wasn't a team for for being the old Wayne Rooney, the great coruscating goal scorer, he was like the elder statesman and he was telling people what to do and where to go and you know the economy and movement and effort. And I thought, I just I just know a little bit more about you now. So that whole idea of, of watching one player is so intriguing and so insightful. Uh, you know, it's a really interesting thing. I'd I'd recommend anyone just go one game and just pick a player and you'll, you'll, you'll know, you'll leave the ground knowing far more about that one player than you did before. Mm. I think Guardiola said it about Busquets, didn't he? He said, if you, if you watch the game, you might miss Busquets, but if you watch Busquets, you won't miss the game. And it's like one That's of those players good, where you just have to, line, yeah. have to see him. Yeah. Um, I was, I was going to ask you, are you able to go to games and just watch them like a fan, a fan of football? Or do you, you know, having covered games for for you know every sort of level of publication do you go and think okay i'm a journalist here. i have to watch this in a certain way i think i probably do yeah 
I probably do. There, there is a, you know, I do have a professional eye on it, I suppose. But it's weird because you do. And right, here's a confession. Certainly when I was doing newspapers, you know, I've not done newspapers, you know, bits and bobs for maybe for five years. Um, because you know, my books are, are so immersive and, you know, the films and stuff um, take so much of my time. As a journo, sometimes you get really, <laughs> you get really selfish and it's not like, um, yeah, I want X to win or Y to win. I don't care who wins, but can they do it in nice time? So I've got a little bit of time to write my intro. You know, I don't want, I don't want to have like the, the lead changing hands in, in added time. Um, and it's a better story if team A win or player B does this, you know? So there is that sort of professional prejudice, I suppose. But there are always times where you just get carried away by the by the sweet. Like I tell you, we're talking um, not too long after the the headed goal by Allison for Liverpool. Now I defy anyone to watch that and don't react. Even if you've got a computer in front of you and you're tapping out your match report, and that was a you know that was a ninety fifth minute ruins everything. You have to scrap everything and start again. I don't know about you, but I was watching it and I jumped out of my seat. I literally jumped out of my seat and screamed. You know, oh my God. So, yeah, you know, the fan inside. And, and also, to be honest, you need, I think you need to have that sort of emotional link to the game. Otherwise, you could be watching anything. You know, you could be watching darts or whatever it is. I, you know, frankly, I don't give a damn who wins in darts. Yeah, so it's, it is a, it's a sort of a... A yin and yang, really. Sometimes, you know, you do get a bit um, precious and you say, right, I want this to happen and I want that to happen. And you pray that it does. But sometimes the, the game just grabs you by the neck and says, what about that then? You know, be indifferent to that, mate. It's very, very yeah. difficult. You can't. Yeah. Um, I really like the line of the book where you say that like, you were too young to realise that you were being introduced to the game's ability to connect generations. And that made me think very, very distinctively of when I went to the penultimate game at the old Wembley for England against Ukraine, it was international friendly. And it was me, my dad, my granddad, my uncle, my cousins. And yeah, it was just the, the only time we ever had a chance to go to the old Wembley. Spurs in my lifetime anyway, weren't good enough to get there. <laughs> um, and it, it's just such a special, a special, yeah, special time that I can look back on and just like remember the stupid things that happened over the course of the game. Like there was a moment in the second half where the Ukraine fans were chanting nonstop and they hadn't split the fans because it was a friendly, there's no real reason to. And there was a, a couple of people sitting behind us the whole second half just on their feet going, Ukraina, Ukraina. <laughs> And after about 15 minutes of it going on solidly, a guy in front of us just stood up and turned around and said, someone poked them in the eye. And I just, <laughs> we all just fell about laughing. It was like, this is such a unique thing to happen in this one moment, in this one environment. Lovely. Yeah, it's that, that whole idea of family and identity and, and, you know, communality is key. And I suppose, you know, with the book, it was a product of its time. I mean, I started writing it during the pandemic and that was a time for self-reflection you know for all of us um but it was inspired in a way by by the death of my father-in-law who passed away in a uh, in a care home in devon in may 
7th of May 2020 at 6.30 a.m. in the morning. And that was a time where, you know, we we, we couldn't, I mean, he was physically detached from us because we couldn't touch him. And we, we communicated through FaceTime. And he, he had COVID, he was infected by a, by a resident who came out of a hospital. But also he was suffering from um, accelerated vascular dementia. So the, you know, the veil was being drawn over his mind. But there was about four days before he, he, he passed. He was a mad Watford fan. And my wife just asked him, out of, out of, apropos nothing, do you remember watching Watford as a kid? You know, do, what, what were your memories of football as a kid? And, and he talked about going to the games. And, and there was this sudden burst of clarity. He talked about going to the games with his dad, 10, 11 years old. He would play youth football. Saturday morning, his dad would watch him. He was quite a good player. Uh, then they go to the ground. They walk about a mile to the ground through the terrace streets of West Watford. Um, he'd have his weekly treat in the sweet shop. Then they go into the ground. And, you know, as I said earlier, it was this big bowl. And, you know, he could remember the sights and the sounds and the smells of football. And so there was an obvious link between him and his father. And, you know, there's a story I tell in the first chapter where when we were looking, sort of collating his belongings, we were in his garden shed after he passed and there was a uh, an old wooden box in the corner, which actually was full of his father's tools. He was a, a craftsman, a woodworker. But in the inside of the box, there were, there were three fixture lists from the 1932-33 season. Watford's first team, the reserve team, and the London midweek team, which is obviously some sort of hybrid team. And there was a very small thumbnail photograph um, of a player in there. And I was intrigued about who that player was, because obviously it was a connection from his father, because his father had, had filled in all, all the results in pencil from that season on all three teams. So I thought, right, I'm going to try and find out who this player was. And, you know, so I went through the time, you know, went through all the archives, had a couple of dead ends. And it was only, again, sorting through some of my uh, father-in-law's belongings that we came across a a team, a football team photograph from the 1945-46 season of the Royal Marines. And he'd been in the war uh, as a commando. The commandos were kept on for a year after the war. And I looked at the photograph and, and it was Ollie, Ollie, Ollie Goss, who was my father-in-law. And I thought it can't be, can it? And so I'm trying to compare that photograph with the with the little thumbnail picture, and I'll never know. That's the, that's the sort of, and probably that's how it should be. But it looked like him, but it didn't add up because if that put, photograph was put in in 1932-33, Ollie would have been 12 years old or 11 years old. So it couldn't have been him. It might have been. You know, my my first thought was, well, did he have a trial for Watford just before the Second World War when he'd have been about 17, 18? So I actually asked the club and they said, look, we, we just don't have records like that. So in a way, it was completely inconclusive. But what that left me with was a really powerful feeling of what football can be and should be, because I'd fallen out of love with the game at that time, was certainly the, the higher end of the game. And it's an expression, a real intimate, it's a really intimate thing. Like you going with your, your dad and your granddad um, and it's a shared experience. 
equally also in the book, and it actually spawned the film I did called Hours for BT Sport, where I always wanted to find out, because part of the process of the book was, you know, having fallen out of love with football, being confronted with the evidence of the link that it formed between my father-in-law and his dad, to go back through my own life, why did I fall in love with it? And what, you know, what did sport give me? And what did I experience through it? But then in, in the sort of latter half of the book is to look at, you know, the good side of things. You know, we, we, we do, you know, accentuate the negative, don't we, quite a lot. And part of that process was trying to get a real indication of, of what a football club means to an individual. So, and, and also, what's it like when you lose your football club? And through no fault your own. So this is when I went to Bury and I met a guy called James Bentley. And he'd never, you know, I'd never met a fan who talked so eloquently and so passionately and so incisively about what the game meant and what his club meant to him more, more particularly. And he'd never, you know, for a year he was lost. He was a lost soul. He didn't, he, he didn't want to read about football. He didn't want to watch it. He didn't even have you know his normal three quid bet on a Saturday morning. He was just in this um, this emotional void. And we were talking on platform two at um, Bolton Street Station in Bury, which is where all the steam trains go in. They go down the valley. You know, it became apparent that so on this station, it was really quite quite appropriate. On this station, this was where the Bury team in 1903 left for the FA Cup final. They won 6-0, came back, uh, it was a Crystal Palace, uh, came back as conquering heroes for the town. Now, that team is immortal. It lives on to this day. The, the legend of that team lives on to this day. And it's a really, you know, it's a source of civic pride that has been sustained for 118 years. So that is the first half of football. Collective identity, civic pride, all those, you know, all that collectivism. But the second thing, and, and therefore that's, that forms identity, a club's identity, a town's identity, a community's identity. But the second part of it was that, that on the same platform, that was where his great-grandfather, uh, James's great-grandfather, uh, went to war in 1914. And he came back to Bury in 1919 after being released from a prisoner of war camp in Germany. Indirectly, his great-grandfather, a guy called Thomas Watts, introduced James to football because the love of football, as it is in your family, was passed down the family tree, you know, from, from the you know, great-grandfather, the grandfather, to the father, to the boy, who's now a middle-aged man. And again, what's football? Football's family. And, and, and so, there were so many things out of that trip that you know, I went to see Barry AFC in the afternoon and, and you saw you saw what football meant. And, and it's, it's got nothing to do with winning or losing. It's got nothing to do with that at all. It's got nothing to do with shiny trophies or you know, brand images or whatever. It's basically, it's a common purpose and friendship. It's, it's mates meeting one another, you know, that there, there are people that you meet, you might not even know. But if you're a season tick holder, you'll know the guy down at the end of the row. You, don't, you might not even know his name, but you know him and you'll nod at him. And So there's that bond. 
And I think that's what's so special about football. And that's what the Super League plotters have so badly misjudged. The humanity of football. I was going to ask whether you think there are models of ownership in modern football that can, like, I guess, work for for want of a better phrase. I think the Super League clubs are in the Super League clubs in England anyway. A good example of where, like, this it was so so ill judged. There was like unbelievable backlash. Basically, no one came out and said this is a great idea. Mm. Um, but then I think, particularly with Leicester winning the FA Cup and all those pictures of the owner hugging the players and even some of the stuff from here I don't know too much about the um, Agnelli family who run Juventus but it's kind of you know the club's been in the family for a really really long time do you think there's a model of ownership that exists in football as it's currently constructed that can continue can sustain can do the things that you've just described in terms of what football is truly about yeah I suppose if you look at the top end of the game, you know, the, the so-called Super League clubs or, or even the Premier League, that's where idealism goes to die, the Premier League or the Super League. You know, it's 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 a great idea. I think, you know, the Newcastle fans coming up with their, their bond scheme, I think it's a really good idea. You know, the idea that eventually they'll be able to buy one or two or three percent of, of Newcastle United, that's a good idea. Whether that's truly feasible, I don't know, but I do believe that the future will be best protected by either fan-run or heavily fan-influenced clubs. Now, again, by definition, when you've got a system whereby uh, the inequality is institutionalised through the Premier League TV money, through the associated parachute payments, through the almost invitation to gamble recklessly that being in the Championship provides that type of theory won't probably work in that type of model in the lower leagues and and also definitely in in, in high non-league that works you see from afc wimbledon through um you know berry afc through lewis that's what i did with the film hours i wanted to look at the way that that fans can actually positively influence the game and their experience of that game um, and, you know, the model is shifting. You know, if you look at a club like Lewis or a club like FC United and Manchester, they're what I call conscience clubs. You know, they've got a clear social purpose and role, as have some of the, you know, the AFCs. That's workable. That is definitely workable. And because, again, it, it almost institutionalises that brotherhood feeling that you've got, you know, that I mentioned, friends meeting one another. There's a really, that's a really powerful bond, that. And it would evolve. It's already evolving. And one of the things that really surprised me about doing a film, and is, I've reflected it in the book as well, is, you know, the newer models, hashtag United. Now, they've mm. basically had to use the phrase that um, Spencer Owen, the, their founder, uh, uses, hashtag have essentially reverse engineered it. Get the fans they've got, Yeah. And, and um, you know, they've got an online offering, which they're now turning into a, you know, a bona fide in inverted commas football club. And it was when we were filming there, one of the guys there said, look, have you, have you spoken to the side men? And I'd never heard of them. Mm. Never, ever heard of them. You know, I'm at the wrong end of the age scale for it, to be perfectly honest, but it blew my mind. The numbers, you know, yeah. The, the side men are, the, you know, there's seven guys 
probably late 20s now, got a combined YouTube following of 110 million and their videos, which are basically mates mucking about type videos, plus a few challenges and things like that. Those videos over the last five years, they've had 26 billion, billion views. Mad. Those figures, are, I just can't, couldn't get my head around those figures. Mm. They got this partnership with Leighton Orient, who are bright enough to understand, hey, these guys gives, an, gives us an entree to an audience, one that's global, two that's young. You know, we, what can we do with that? Football, you see, doesn't even think, football never, ever thinks about outside the box. They just, they, they, it's, it's an introspective process. So I'll be fascinated to see how that goes because, you know, I can see Leighton Orient being ahead of the curve on that one. I think it's a really good idea. Of course, in, in the course of the book and in, even in the course of this, this chat, Josh, we've, you know, I've, I've gone back to, you know, 1969, 70 and, you know, 50 years ago, for goodness sake. But, and, and, I, and I don't want to say it was better in my day. It wasn't because I hate that. I hate that idea of, um, you know, dinosaurs looking at the meteorite coming and saying, well, you can't hit me because it does, mate. It eventually does. The great thing about generations is that they, they have their own heroes. They have their own cultures, but they don't, I don't think anyway, they don't exist in isolation from one another. You know, there are things that happened in the past, which I think are relevant to the future. And those things tend to be there's a human element to those things and and that's where hopefully you'll never kill people's innate enthusiasm for this daft game they call football i do worry especially in the last year where you know essentially through tv everyone's been force-fed this sort of sterile version of the game without any fans and it's on every night and people are going i don't need this anymore it's too much. It's relentless. Yeah. And, um, but also as a result of, you know, what I talked about earlier with the pandemic, you know, the one thing that, again, writing the book gave me can really confirm my opinion. I think people will move away from the Premier League. They'll be replaced by tourists because, you know, modern, modern Premier League clubs are, in essence, a superstore with a, with a football club tagged on. I think, you know, lower league, like, so, for instance, if professionally I didn't have to watch Premier League or Super League, my preference would always be to watch lower league football or even non-league because there's that intimacy that I found as a kid when I was, you know, on the touchline as, a, 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 as an 11-year-old. I'm close to the players. Mm. You know, you go to an... Well, it's, it, the example I've, I've quoted a couple of times is a mate of mine. He, he recently moved and he's a West Ham fan. He calculated that to take his lad to football at the London Stadium or Olympic Stadium, I prefer to call it. So that entailed return train journeys, a few beers for the game, maybe something to eat, a couple of beers after, 250 quid. Yeah, and he's easily. saying, yeah, easily. you know, it's mad. And, and so he's saying, well, he's, he's moved just not too far from me. I'll go and watch um, this club down the road called Barton Rovers. Just don't know anything about them, but got a couple of mates who go with me. Eight quid to get in, a few beers, change ends at half time, have a pie, whatever it is. What's that? 30 quid. Mm. You know, I'll still be a West Ham fan, but I'll watch them occasionally on the TV. So I think a lot of that might happen. And it's interesting, you know, and I'm, you know your, your club, Josh Spurs, you know, we're talking the night after that horrendous exercise. I saw where, your tweet, yeah. Well, well, you know, 
and, and you know, there were Spurs fans that I know, you know, they paid their 60 pounds to go there. They're right up in the upper tiers because they didn't want to, you know, I understand why commercially they do this, but I hate it. But, you know, they, they, they left the sponsors banners up around near the pitch and it's, it was just so sterile and so sad that you've got essentially, you know, business so overwhelming that football is no longer personal. Now it was per- it was personal to every one of those ten thousand fans at Spurs last night, and frankly, they were I thought you know treated with really contempt by by the club because that's just they're not consumers, you know they're not widgets. You know football's not widgets. It's something much more important and much more intrinsic than that. And I'm going to be I'm going to be really interested next season to see what the take up rates on Premier League season tickets are because at the moment you know they've basically there's been existing not not and I'm not making a specific point here about Spurs but you know no feel free go ahead no but but club but certainly clubs almost use season tickets as a form of moral blackmail Massively. Didn't Newcastle, didn't Mike Ashley renew the Newcastle fan season tickets bef- without telling them even when there was going to yeah. be a pandemic at the start of whenever it was, May 2020? Yeah. Com- completely. And that, that like, this is your club, the Arsenal example you give in the book with the Arteta video. Oh, you know, yeah, it's, like, it's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's sickening. One of the questions I was going to ask you, there's, there's a bit in the book where you talk about the Ipswich fans who raised £110,000 to build this statue. Um, yeah. And I was going to ask, like, at what level of the game does that, like, how far down the pyramid do we have to go for fans to say, okay, yep, I'm, I've got enough stake, I've got enough at stake here. This is, I feel like this is my club to the point where I'm going to pay for this thing that the club in Championship or Premier League could, would, could pay for. <laughs> well, I put it like this if you had a whip round in Liverpool last Sunday or whenever it was, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you'd have definitely got a, a statue of. <laughs> Uh, of um, Alison, I don't think we should actually equate it with money. Really, you know, there is obviously, you know, the, the growth of AFC Wimbledon has been been fueled and funded by the by the fans. You know, yeah. they had their was it five million pound option, which enabled them to buy their own ground, and so that is, and I suppose it is more special when you do that because there is a little bit of you in there, and I love visiting football stadia because especially the old ones where, and especially when they're empty, there's, you know, they got a soul, you know, there's a spirit to the place. And when you think about it, it's not surprising because every ground that you go to, you know, there've been countless fans who've had their ashes scattered on the ground, you know, I'm not getting all sort of spiritual about this, but the place matters, mm. you know, again, you know, talking to, to, to James at Berry, you know, he was talking about, um, you know his mates. He going down with his, you know, his, his mates, and you know, basically scattering the ashes along the touchline. And you know, guys that he'd seen every Saturday for X number of years, not turning up on Saturday because they passed away. And and you know, and how that was a real sense of loss and and, and, and you know, mourning if you like. So you know, the game is 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 really. You know, it has to emotionally engage. Um, you know, you go to clubs now. A lot of clubs now have got like memorial gardens. I went to Accrington for the book, which and I love that club. I think it's a brilliant, brilliantly run club with a you know great owner um, uh, who I love to bits. I think that I think the ethos of the club is great. 
and you know they've just got a memorial garden at the back of uh, their stand and it's just simple a fan name date of birth date of death and a message from the family because that fat football club you know was there you know for better or for worse you know richer poorer in sickness and health you know it, it, the club was him or her whoever that is and again it's a, it's almost then though because there's just a simple sort of gray plaque commemorating this supporter or you know those supporters it becomes a place of pilgrimage for people um a couple of uh i guess quick quick fire questions because i know i've taken up a lot of your time um i was gonna say where where's your favorite ground that you've ever been to well i suppose the azteca stadium in mexico city mm -hmm. is just breathtaking but i probably got my softest spot for the uh, the camp new um it was the first game i watched uh england as a journo on a away trip um 1980 um march 1980 england won 2-0 yeah the scale of it and i was a bit of a sucker for the you know the mescaon club you know the oh you know, massively the and me i did my year abroad in catalonia so i got i was okay. completely sucked well that you see that, but that's it you see i you know and i love that you know i i went to um athletic bilbao as well and again that sense of identity yeah um especially you know looking at the cantera and 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 the, the you know the obviously at barcelona you've got la masia this whole idea that it's football is bigger than the sum of its parts and yeah. um yeah so I, I i suppose you know if if you had to say if you gave me a season ticket for any club in the world probably it would be barcelona that's a nice way to put it best game you've ever seen live whoa um best game i've ever seen live Cool, that's a, I, I did the I did the uh, Newcastle four Arsenal four game. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. Yeah, which which was mind boggling. And funny enough, I've obviously relived it. I did a book with Joe Barton, and Joe played in that game. Yeah, yeah, that probably was one of those ones where you go, no, that can't happen. But you know, to be honest, there, there are so many. Um, but yeah, that one actually does stand out as a as a oh my god, you know that type of game. Mm. Uh, best individual performance you've ever seen? Maradona, 86, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we culturally, we got a massive hang-up about the hand of God goal. <sighs> Frankly, I, I, you know, I don't get this. I, I had, I, I had, um, I, I mentioned it very briefly in the book, I, I had lunch with Terry Butcher, who's, you know, become a friend, and a friend, another friend of mine, a guy called David Walker, who's my sports editor. And we were talking about Maradona and he just said two words, fucking cheat. And that was, <laughs> that was 30, or 30 odd years after it happened. So that it, that it stays with him. You know, frankly, England tried to try to take his knees out that day. Anyway, I, I, I can't get carried away by the moral, you know, indignation over the, uh, you know, the handball. If that makes me a bad person, well, fine. Um, and the second goal, uh, was the greatest ever goal I've ever seen. It was just like, you cannot be serious, you know, and we've all had those moments, haven't we, where we just sort of turn to the guy next to you and say, did you see that? What the fuck was all that about? Yeah, yeah. Forgive, forgive my French. But it no, was don't just... worry. Uh, uh, I enjoy it when people swear to <laughs> make a point. Yeah. I, and, and it was just, yeah, that was just mind boggling. And also, 
you know, that whole day was uh, was really memorable because, you know, from the, you know, it was a 12 o'clock kickoff, so high noon, we'd been there for a, quite a while in Mexico and we'd all had this, what we call the Mexico cough because of all the smog. That burnt off. Uh, we, 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 able to, when we were going to the ground, you, you go past these churches and all the, all the kids coming out in their white sort of um, uh, communion gear and, you know, there was that sort of serenity about it. You're going in the ground and you've got, there are guys, there were guys carrying the biggest trays of beers that I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> they had like about 25 beers on their plates. So surprise, surprise, a few of our dullards started, you know, doing the Little England a bit and, and fighting. It was really hot. I, I remember right at the start of the kickoff, I was absolutely mesmerised by the shadow that the public address system cast on the on the pitch. So if you ever see the game, it's like a sort of spider's web. And I was mesmerised by that. And then obviously we had the, the psychodrama of, of the hand of God, then, then that um, um, unbelievable goal afterwards. And then after the game, in my role that day was as a sort of colour writer. And I had to go down to the England dressing room um well we could get quite close in those days couldn't actually obviously couldn't obviously get in but that's when he saw it butch had just come back from the drugs testing room which he shared with maradona and he said i wanted to chin him i said i came really close to chinning him <laughs> and and even um ray wilkins who was a, a lovely lovely man and f funny enough he was the first thing the footballer i really got to know because covered the 1982 World Cup in Bilbao and that was the time of such innocence that uh, we arrived on the same plane as the team and they gave us a lift in the team bus to our team hotel to our hotel Love and that. yeah and and I, I sat next to Bray um, and you know he was the youngest member of the team at the time and I was the youngest member of the press corps so we, you know we had a bit of um, sort of common ground if you like and I said you know do they take the stick it you, know, you get stick as well you say oh you won't believe it you know as the kid the rookie and all that say, oh, i'm getting the same stuff so and again so that was that's again some of the joys you know that you you know you you see how those those guys you know develop over the years ray was the mildest mannered man <laughs> this is mad really it was a kamikaze mission by this bloke but the argentina kit man came in to try and organize shirt swapping right <laughs> and and Ray sort of got out of his seat and walked towards him and you know he was only about five eight or whatever it was and he said fuck off just fuck off out of here <laughs> and, and and for him to say that it's a bit like you know the Archbishop of Canterbury swearing at someone it was so out of character but yeah, it was just like yeah that was it was some day that and um yeah Steve Hodge you know, getting married on a shirt, which is obviously going to be worth a fortune. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think from memory, he actually named his autobiography, uh, The Man Who's Got Married on a Shirt. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was someday, that was someday. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. I just wanted to say to finish, I sat down to start reading this thinking, yeah, the fucking Super League, all these modern football nonsense and, the way that it starts with the bits about the dementia and the pandemic and the care homes, it just, it just took me somewhere I wasn't really expecting to go and really, really humanised everything. And I just, I 
flew through it after that. So um, I really, really enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, can't can't recommend it enough. Um, and yeah, it's been lovely to meet you and to, to chat to you. I really, really appreciate your time, Mike. That's no problem, Josh. Uh, keep the faith, eh? <laughs> no question. <laughs>